This bonus series was launched in cooperation with Six Swiss Exchange. It focuses on the companies that completed the first Sparks IPO Academy course, a six-month fast-track IPO training program designed for high-potential scale-ups. The first wave, to be honest, it's, you know, we were like, okay, we're not going to do a lot of work for three months. We have a good balance sheet. We have some cash. Okay, we'll lose money for three months and then we'll just move on. Uh, you know, then that's June. Then the summer happens, second wave in the fall. Then, you know, you're like, oh shit. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Sebastian, very well, welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Yeah, I'm so happy to be in Zurich. You know, my family comes from here, but uh, so happy to be here. Welcome back in that case. You're the CEO at MCI Group, a global next generation platform for marketing. Before we talk about your impressive family business, I actually want to start with your personal background. You studied finance and international business at the Northeastern University in Boston. So my first question is, how did your time in the U.S. shape and also change you? I think, you know, the U.S. studies was really made for me because it has a different way of learning than Europe. Um, if I take a little bit of an extreme scenario, I remember my friends, they were studying their books and learning formulas by heart. Mm -hmm. And in the U.S., when you go to a test, you can take your book. Because in real life, you have your book. So that's what I really enjoyed, this aspect of responsibility and accountability and just like in real life kind of philosophy. It's much closer to what you then also do in business afterwards. So it's, is it preparing you in a better way for the business world afterwards? So it's the, in a way with entrepreneurship, yes, because also in the US, you have only 10 to 15 hours of classes per week but there's double or triple of homework. Mm -hmm. So it teaches you to take your own future uh, in your hands. Very motivating in that regard. You have to be. Yeah. <laughs> and when you were studying in the US, was entrepreneurship on your mind as a career choice at all? Because I imagine that this would be a bit more common in the US than in Switzerland, for example. So it's true. So I have to say I'm half Canadian. So I had already this North American kind of, you know, go for gold, uh, go for California kind of, uh, you know, mindset. Um, but uh, de de definitely it, uh, it supported that, that philosophy. Uh, yeah. and, and when you were studying there, did you envision that you would one day become an entrepreneur yourself? Or were you also evaluating other options like, you know, consulting or investment banking or anything of that sort? I mean, to be honest, I was a little bit innocent you know i was just living through i was already so happy to study in the u.s it was my dream you know and then i had an aunt in california i was going to go there and you know and then you know to see what happens next so i was not really thinking that way but you know when i think back uh, at my life you know i think you know i set up a band the first day i bought a guitar i didn't know how to play so probably i had this you know go-getter and an initiator mentality from the beginning you also mentioned on your LinkedIn that you actually started your first venture when you were just seven years old. Can you talk a bit more about that? Because it seems that entrepreneurship really runs in your DNA. 
Yeah, so that was, the, of course, the story before that. So I told the, the music band story. Mm -hmm. But before that, with my friend, we were, we liked to draw cartoons. And, uh, you know, we decided, was, oh, let's start a company. You know, I'm going to look for sponsors and I'll do the legal. You're going to do the creative. <laughs> so we're, you know, having fun, seven, eight years old. Yeah. But so definitely, you know, again, like I said, when I look back, there are hints when you look back at where, at your history of uh, what you become. Right. And in that regard, The MCI Group is a family business. It was founded in 87 by your father, by Roger. And how was that for you to grow up in this family business? I imagine coming from an SME family myself, the business is always present, right? That's a huge part of your life and also of your family life. So it was, but I'd never really realized what it meant to own a business because my grandfather was a courier person. So he was also working a lot all the time, a very high level job in the travel industry. So I already saw him work a lot. So I didn't really make a difference. So yeah. it's only in 2006, I think it was, I have a friend who invited me to an association called Young Entrepreneur Organization that I discovered the word actually, yeah. although I was already an owner, but I didn't realize I was an entrepreneur. It's really yeah. something that came late to me. And how was your childhood looking then? You know, like when your dad was, was building the business, did he also talk about that on like, you know, family dinners and lunches, for example? So for sure it was on the, on, on the agenda, right? On the dinner, but not more than that. You know, we, we like to work hard and play hard. So, you know, when we were with family, we had fun. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when it was time for work, you know, I went to school and I guess he went to work, yeah. but we had really a good time when we were together. Would you say also what you just mentioned before with your grandfather also working really hard, was work uh, an important piece? Like uh, it had a, a high standard, a high role in your, in your setup, the way that you grew up. It was important to work hard. So that, that's a very good question. I always remember my dad told me very young, he said, you have to work hard, but with everything that you gain from working hard, it's so you're happy and have fun in life. So the, the objective was not to work hard. The objective mm -hmm. was a means to an end, which was having a happy life. Yeah. And work was a means to having a happy life and enjoying life. I can imagine that sometimes this balance is not that easy to strike, right? Because sometimes you have to work much harder than you want to and have a bit less fun in life. And sometimes it can also be the other way around. How do you balance the two between working hard and having fun in life? So those who know me, they know I'm pretty intense. I wake up early, I go to bed late. So I'm always, you know, at 200 uh, miles an hour. <laughs> um, so I guess it's part of me. I have a lot of energy and uh, I don't really uh, personally feel that difference or any kind of pain around that. Of course, there's bad days, but there's also good days. And then I'm lucky that my family, uh, my wife, the kids, they, they respect and understand and, you know, leave me uh, to, to do what I have to do. So it's a, a whole support system also that is important in that regard. Absolutely. We're a team. I always say it. We're a team with my wife, and I think this is our success. And then actually after your studies, you started working in the family business. Was that an easy decision that it was very clear for you to actually start working there immediately? Or was that something that you also thought about whether it's the right move for you? 
So, of course, I, I thought about it a lot. And a f about two years before uh, I made the move, I remember having a meeting with my father and he says, hey, you just have to tell me in two years when you finish, are you coming to work in the business or are you going to California as you planned? Yeah. And he says, you have to give me an answer in two weeks. So wow. <laughs> then, I, then, you know, two weeks later, I just thought about it. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'll come to Switzerland. So uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. And, uh, you know, it was very innocent, not, not, not well thought through, just going along with life, you know, and just saying yes. But I think that's also an entrepreneurial trait, right? Sometimes being a bit naive to just like, oh, yeah, let's see what happens. Let's give it a try and not think about everything that could potentially go wrong. Yeah, I, I, I agree. <laughs> it was easier to do what I did 20 years ago <laughs> than if I had to do it now. I'd be more scared now, probably. When yeah. I start new businesses, I'm more scared now than uh, before, for sure. Right. And how did you start in the company? What was your first role when you joined the company, the family business? So I joined really entry-level job, you know, the first uh, level in the company, planning events, uh, basically. So uh, we could say in summary, I know I did all the jobs along the way. So that's a big advantage, I feel, because I really have a good feeling for every part of the business. Yeah, you, you got to know everything, basically. And that's also an interesting part, right? You're the world's largest conference organizer, which is crazy if you think about the scope and the size of, of your company. How did that focus then also change over time? Because today you have multiple more business offerings on top of the conference. So that's entrepreneurship, right? You always have to innovate, always to look at how the market is changing and all our evolutions and our new ventures are about go-to-market strategies, about new angles mm -hmm. that have developed. And so and we, we were hungry. You know, we simply like to, to, to build so we, we started new, new lines, new verticals. And uh, last year, so I created the group, really. So that's now the platform that mm -hmm. we call it to create kind of a, a startup mentality. Well, we're going to talk more uh, in more detail about that in a second. When you were working alongside your father, you moved through the different departments in, in that MCI group. Was it easy to work in the family business or sometimes harder than even having a, you know, a normal employee, not a family member? I never felt any particular difficulty working in the family business. Um, um, I kind of mentioned high level. So my father is my dad, but then we had always a lot of fun together. So he's also one of my best friends and we were business partners. So all of that was together and there was a lot of respect all the time. And I think mm -hmm. this is something where I was lucky uh, that my family was able to have a lot of respect for all the teams and it applied to me as well. Yeah. So it's, it's it came very natural to you in that regard. It, 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 with hindsight, it was very natural, yeah. very natural. Then in 2010, you actually took over the CEO role from your dad. Was that something that has always been planned that way? I mean, yes and no, because, you know, it was kind of, you know, I would say if you would ask anyone in the company who was with us back then, you know, they would say, I mean, it's the obvious is what, you know, family sure. businesses do. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, it took a few years for me to prove also the roles little by little, you know, progressing mm -hmm. in the company. And uh, at the point when we did the transition, uh, I believed it came naturally. But it doesn't mean there was no prep work, right? There was, yeah. I did have a strategy very clear organized, planned, and, you know, some very specific steps that we have designed. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine that there's also some pressure. Of course, you're very motivated to take over the family business and lead it to new growth and new heights. 
But at the same time, taking over from your dad, I can imagine that's also quite some pressure involved there. Probably. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say no, but probably I'm not saying the truth. I don't know. Maybe I'm shy. Maybe it's, uh, it's because I, I try not to think about it. Mm -hmm. Maybe, but there must be, of course, I want them to be proud. You know, I want to, uh, uh, you know, to have some success. Uh, uh, so um, this pressure, but there was motivation above that, I think, that created my energy and my motivation was probably above that pressure. So I didn't really feel it uh, directly. Got it. And how did you then manage that transition? Did your dad stay on board for a certain time to also support you? Or did you cut ties and say, hey, I take over the operational CEO role now. You got to stay out of the game. How did you manage that? So, like I said, our process was pretty clear. And, um, you know, you hear stories about always about family businesses where the transition of generation is difficult. And mm -hmm. I would say for us, it wasn't too much. So I always use the, the, the example, right? The, the first day when we had that discussion, one of my first actions was to write a job description for my dad because now he was going to work for me right. and not me for him. And it was very important, And uh, this step. And I recommend it all the time. It was clear, where are you going to get involved? Where are you not going to get involved? Where do I need you? Where do you need to take some actions? Where you should not take some actions? And then I think where I'm saying I was lucky, and it's thanks to him, that he had the ability to step away. And that's not always easy for a yeah. founder to step away. And I think he had that special ability to, to be able to extract himself from some decisions that maybe he didn't agree, but he let me experience with. So this was, um, I say, luck. It's, uh, you know, it's his strategy. That's, yeah, that sounds like the perfect setup because then he can leverage his knowledge and experience mm -hmm. to support you in decisions where you're seeking support, right. but keep him out of the operational daily stuff where you say, hey, I got this. I don't need any additional input. Right. That's the role of a chairman, and that's what we decided he does. And he did the role of a chairman. He didn't do the role of an ex-CEO, right. and this was you know, his uh, success. So the role de definition, the role description, the job description is something that you mentioned. Is there anything else that you would recommend to people who face a similar handover or transition from father to son? I mean, the, the second key step that, you know, the teams, I got feedback on that, right? So it's not my direct uh, personal view, mm -hmm. is I also immediately uh, wrote a new business plan. So it was, uh, which was a balance of building on the foundations of the past with a lot of respect, yet adding elements for a few, the future and adapting to the current market. Yeah. So very quickly, I wrote, uh, I mean, immediately, I wrote a very clear business plan, visited all the teams, and uh, really, I mean, worked with the teams on that business plan. It was not a solo work, right? Engaging with the teams, so they saw that I was a collaborative leader. Mm -hmm. um, and then we know we really executed on that plan. Wow, and yeah, your different department visits that you built over the years, that you really knew the company and understood mm -hmm. the business behind it, yeah. That certainly helped to execute that. So perfect segue, because today you offer multiple services. You have three different areas that you focus on. Can you elaborate a bit more how you evolved from the pure conference organizing or conference event organizer to a more diversified group strategy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what we realized, so this was linked, uh, is the result of really COVID because uh, we were impacted quite highly. And in a very specific manner. It was a true black swan, so something unexpected of gigantic proportion and so on, yeah. um, where we had to look at our assets. 
because it was a moment uh, of truth. And mm -hmm. what we realized is, okay, we have so MCI, the main agency that's global that everybody knows. But through the years, we did develop a little venture here and there. And it was basically creating a story with all of our assets. In a way before, and you know, I will say, say it, it's like we had you know, one, may, one kid, but actually we had more kids and we didn't love them as well. And that was unfair. <laughs> so we really looked at our different businesses and we realized that we had uh, you know, five, six agency brands or agencies giving professional service in the field of uh, marketing communication events. Mm -hmm. We realized that we had built over years a couple of, of uh, conventions, conferences that we owned or co-owned, so direct ownership. And then um, with COVID, a couple of opportunities to invest or to develop startups and accelerate them. Mm -hmm. So that's where I thought, okay, I mean, let's embrace that story and not hide it. Because before we were hiding it, we were shy. Oh, MCI is the main company, everybody knows us. Those other things are smaller, uh, maybe not as powerful, but it didn't matter. So it was really about embracing everything we know how to do and then you know, uh, going to see the market and see if there's traction. And uh, we're very happy we did that. But that's also quite a bold move, right? Because you understand your core assets, mm -hmm. but it's still with the size of your company and all the employees working for you, that's quite a shift to take. How do you make sure that you really onboarded people and got them to embark on that change? I mean, my business is meeting people face-to-face, -face, communicating, engaging, and creating a connection. So that's mm -hmm. what I did. I met my teams engaged, connected, and developed plans together. So that was really my strategy always. So uh, maybe not so much digital, very analog uh, process. But what, what we, the process was really to also um, r bring up a few key leaders in the most well-known business, MCI, which was structured. So we brought in a guy called Oscar, for example, as chief strategy officer on that business, which freed my time to spend more time with some of those other assets. And as uh, we know, innovation has to be led by CEOs. So that's really what I applied um, in the company. And in that regard, you, you mentioned the three different areas, right? You have the life and virtual events, you have the agency and communication business, and then also the new ventures slash startups. Mm -hmm. How does, do you split the importance or what is your biggest important uh, business part of these three? So, you know, it's what I said before. I don't have a favorite son, a favorite <laughs> daughter. So I give yeah. my time equally to everybody, okay. at least the mind share. Then in yeah. volume, of course, there's a split. Sure. And, you know, it, it, it's, I mean, we're pretty disciplined. Uh, you know, I truly believe in, in disciplined actions. Mm -hmm. um, and it's about really going through a process of having key touch points with every part of the business, with forces, an interaction, a decision, yeah co-working, uh, and so on. So it's really through, I would say, um, a disciplined execution that I'm able to manage all those different plans. Right. And I imagine revenue-wise, it's probably clear which of the segments is the most important one. Is it still the life and virtual events sure. part? Sure, at the moment. Yeah. So we're in the marketing and communication field, and yeah. we have a specialty in live events, and this is still the biggest right. part in revenue. But who knows in the future? <laughs> Do you see a shift happening more towards the, the new businesses that you create already? 
or too uh, early to I tell. I mean, it's not a competition between each. Again, yeah. that's my mindset. I'm not recreating a competition between the brands. Every brand is growing very nicely. But, you know, yeah. of course, a brand that does 100 million that grows 10 percent adds more revenue than a brand sure. of a million that adds 50 percent more. So, yeah. right. Um, but the revenue is still uh, live events, mostly on the MCI side. But we're starting to grow uh, significantly the other uh, brands as well. And how does your business model look like for these different parts? Um, maybe you can elaborate on every single one of them, what your business model behind it looks like. I mean, I mean, one business model is professional service model. So, yeah. you know, uh, we work uh, for fees and time. Basically, sure. we sell intellectual power, so human capital to our clients, creativity, project management. That's mm -hmm. uh, kind of more the agency world. On the where we own our own convention, so that's a little bit more about being an owner, an entrepreneur, building a business that happens to be creating a platform in a field where people connect. But there you're really building a business. It's like a startup, really. You're building a business. Yeah. And then in the venture side, that's something new we're learning because there you don't necessarily have... The majority is more you investing somewhere and you're mm -hmm. being a board member. And that's another yeah. business model because you're trying to give advice, but you cannot do uh, for yeah. there's an entrepreneur building that business. Right. So that's something new we're learning there as well. So it's a nice mix of a more mature platform where we sell our time, uh, being an owner operator mm -hmm. and uh, finally uh, more being an advisor. So it's quite interesting. And investor as well. Yeah, yeah investor, of course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Before you also mentioned COVID, of course, huge challenge for every event industry, of course. How did you actually face that from a, from a psychological standpoint? You know, when everything just changes from today to tomorrow, can you take us a bit back to the time when you saw, oh, there's COVID coming, but maybe it's not in Switzerland yet. What were your initial thoughts when you heard about COVID the first time? So we are a global business. So we were lucky in the sense that we, I mean, we were impacted right away because yeah. we operated in China and so on. So we really saw the wave come to us and, you know, ending yeah. in the US or uh, really from, uh, from, uh, from East to West. Yeah. So we saw the wave. So we, we had some form of preparation little by little because we had to act very fast in one part of the world. And then you know, we're seeing the wave happen. But, you know, what happens is, I mean, you go in, a, you know, you go in, a, we went into a bubble. So mm -hmm. first of all, really working as a team very, very closely, a lot of teamwork, a lot of being there for each other, really working in a bubble. Um, the first wave, to be honest, it's, you know, we were like, okay, we're not going to do a lot of work for three months. We have a good balance sheet. We have some cash. Okay, we'll lose money for three months and then we'll just move on. Uh, you know, then that's June, then the summer happens, second wave in the fall, yeah. then, you know, you're like, oh shit, excuse of my course, French. No, of course, <laughs> Right, yeah. and you're like, whoa. So yeah. this is going to become complicated. Yeah. Uh, but again, we, what, what we st start to see at that moment is that we had always a strategy to have really loyal and big clients and not work on project to project. So we always focused on long-term relationships with our customer. It was part of our business model. Yeah. And really, we saw that our customers that were with us a long time, they really trusted us and were also lost. Mm -hmm. So they were looking for advice and they came to us and together we created ideas and we started to transform uh, their communication and marketing strategies to the new realities. Yeah. So we, at the end of the day, we did, uh, you know, globally only minus 35 percent. Um, that also made us realize our key assets, like I mentioned before, that yep. we had other businesses that were not directly linked to events and that we could mm -hmm. build on. 
So um, re really, yeah, the, all the gems in the company, they rose. Yeah. And then we just took advantage of that and, you know, step by step with patience uh, yeah. because it was long, rebuild the business. And, you know, now we're seeing the profits again and we're growing again, you know, double digit growth. So really excited. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. But that was a tough time for sure. It was a, it was a tough time. Um, uh, and a, a time of, of, of um, you know, it was a bit the yin and your yang, right, mm -hmm. moment, because there's some very deep uh, uh, problematic moments and uh, some high joy moments. So, for example, you know, I had a son during that period, so having a kid, right? So yeah. it's really this mix of between your life and work, you see how important everything is together. Um, and for me, my, my, my number one lesson was teamwork. It's be there one for another and never stay alone. One of my key strategies in this period was when I was feeling really down, I went to the office, you know, and there was always maybe only one or two people, but you had a coffee machine yeah. and you just see somebody and you can relate and, yeah. and you can support each other. And that was really powerful uh, for me. I can imagine. And how do you protect your business, you know, from a also financial standpoint? You mentioned you have a good balance sheet, but then after three months and hoping that this will go over fast, you suddenly realize hey, maybe this is staying a bit longer than we all expected. Mm -hmm. What were some short, maybe also mm -hmm. mid to long-term measures that you took mm -hmm. to also protect the company from a financial standpoint? So I, I would say probably three things uh, that come to mind, uh, not to, to talk too much. Sure. Uh, the, the first part uh, was, I mean, our solid balance sheet allowed us to live more than three months with no business. So it, mm -hmm. it was uh, solid. Uh, we don't distribute dividends, so we keep the cash. We have really a, an investment strategy. So we had reserves and we really build on that. The second uh, part is, I remember it was maybe 25 years ago, something like that. I was at the entrepreneurship dinner and there was this old man next to me, 80 something years old. And he, he and I know dinner of networking. And I remember my whole life, this story, because always, you know, the, <laughs> the, this guy with a lot of experience that builds all kinds of business. And he said, Sebastian, when everything is good, that's when you negotiate a lot of money from the banks. Mm -hmm. So I always had that in mind. And basically our company, we, we had structured a lot of credit lines through our history with banks. Yeah. So this allowed us to pull a lot of cash flow immediately, uh, yeah. like just instantly. Yeah. So that means already cash was not my number one problem. And that's a huge win, that's right? That's a huge win. Yeah. <laughs> that's a huge win. Wow. Uh, so this was though the, the historical balance sheet, yeah. even more because of that uh, ability to have strong cash and that and then you're not, uh, you know, worried during the every night, are you going to be able to pay people? And then the third part with this is the less fun. I mean, we just reacted very quickly and just restructured the business. We didn't have a choice. I, and I have a few friends, uh, sadly, that, that had bankruptcies. And I always call them because I always want, you know, that's the U.S. learning. You always try to learn from others in right. the U.S. mindset. So I always call them. And all of them said, if I had to do one thing over when I went bankrupt was to act faster. So for me, this is always something also I had in my mind when there's a shift. Mm -hmm. You act fast. Yeah. And... So that's what we did. We acted really fast in restructuring, looking at areas of the business that were going to be resilient, less resilient. Where's their waste? Um, where sh should we invest? Because it was not only about cutting costs, it was also about investing. For example, sure. creative teams. We hired creative teams because with our customers who were lost, they needed ideas. Yep. So we hired creative teams. But on the execution side, the volumes were not the same. So we needed less teams. Mm -hmm. 
so we, execution very fast. This was key. And I think these learnings now, of course, you experienced them during COVID, but these learnings are universally applicable. So yeah, no so. matter what crisis or challenge comes up, that's the right mindset, right? And that probably also makes you stronger yeah, and more Be well-funded, right? We're talking about entrepreneurship. Yeah. Be well-funded and execute super fast. And yes, strategy is important too, but probably at that moment, we didn't think too much about strategy, right? Sure. It was execution. Yeah. Absolutely. Another thing I want to talk about is your company growth. So initially, you know, when your family business started, founded by your father, you grew from 30 people to now more than 2,000 employees all over the globe. How do you manage this this growth as a family business? I mean, you know, from knowing every employee by first name probably to having global employees and not having a single chance to know everyone of them. How do you manage that from an operational but also from a cultural perspective? I mean, you know, you manage it step by step. Uh, that's the most important, yeah. I think, at the end of the day. But what often, you know, my, my reaction is that first is that we wanted a big business that's global. We didn't, you know, it didn't happen because we had a great product and then we were running after business. You know, it, yeah. we, we worked hard. We were clear of what we wanted to do. So we had a business in Switzerland. We wanted the same business in multiple countries. We were interested in having a global business. We didn't want to have a Swiss business in Switzerland. It was not something that excited us. So that means that's what makes it also easier because what you want, it makes you happy. You were very clear about that. We were very clear yeah. about that. We wanted a global business. So mm -hmm. then, you know, step by step, how do you build a global business? Yeah. We use the same recipe that we had, uh, if I can call it that, in, in Switzerland, which yeah. was great teams mm -hmm. in the company, a connection with the market. It's where we spent always, you know, being involved in our sector, basically. So joining industry associations, uh, lobby groups that help at the advancement of the sector. So we always spent a lot of time in our fields of work. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, of course, a focus on customers and yeah. global customers, if possible, because we knew those global customers could give us business in multiple countries. Right. So really using, you know, uh, great teams, you know, being involved with purpose mm -hmm. in your sector. Um, so giving a lot of free time, uh, yeah. basically, to the market, mm -hmm. and then uh, focusing on the big customers that were multinationals, that, that valued what we had to offer. Yeah. This was really what we did and multiplied, and, you know, it, it worked, and then it's just, you know, one country, second country, third sure. country, fourth country. So just step by step after that. You know, it's important to choose your priorities, I mm -hmm. think, and sometimes when you have five, um, you know, you have to choose two. And this, I think we had the discipline again, I would come back. Maybe it's our Swiss mindset, the <laughs> clockwork yeah. philosophy, just to go step by step. Yeah. The way that you say it, it sounds almost simple, but I know it's not. So you have to get a few things very, very right to get to the point where you are today. I could imagine one key thing is the cultural aspect that you have the right people because the teams are so important for your business. How do you shape and also ingrain the culture when you grow as a company to 2,000 plus employees? So very good question. Um, so this is not my design. So this was my, my, my father's design. Mm -hmm. But uh, if I summarize it is, uh, you know, you, you, you don't make money if you don't invest money, basically. And what he did at the very beginning when we decided to go international, we created what I would call the headquarter office, head of finance, Head of people, head of people and culture, mm -hmm. head of marketing, head of solutions, head of clients, and this is very expensive. Oh yeah, because you're building basically a non 
productive team. That means not working with customers. Yeah. But that team was, was basically developing the platform. Make sure we had standards in finance, standards in recruitment, standards in marketing, that the brands was the same everywhere in the world, using the same website, the same marketing, the same words, that the employment contracts, the remuneration philosophy was the same, and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. And this was how we could scale fast. Yeah. Because since we had the infrastructure, it was a little bit like, you know, a, a plug and play situation. You find a new business or you start up the business yeah. and there is a clear way of how we're going to work. So this was, I think, a key element of the success was deciding to invest in the platform rather than taking money out of the business to buy a nice yeah. car. Absolutely. Right. So, yeah. yeah, very important mindset to get the basis right. And that means investing without any immediate return, but which allows you to grow much bigger later down the road instead of everything falling apart when you try to scale. Exactly right. One other thing I want to talk about with you is sustainability. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that the Vision Horizon 2025 on your website. Mm -hmm. how, how is the sustainability an important aspect for your business and for the future? Why, do you, like, why is it so important to you and your business? So ESG is super important. Uh, to the world and you know, climate change. Uh, we went from uh, you know, COVID, the first yeah. C, to conflict, the second C, and the real C is climate change that we have to deal yeah. with now. So all those are you know, relatively easy, but climate is super hard. Mm -hmm. And we embarked on that journey more than 10 years ago. Again, you know, it's at a dinner, I met somebody, <laughs> you know, I network a lot, yeah. you know, that talked to me about environment and so on. Um, I saw Al Gore at one of his first speeches, you all know, you know, that he did a lot for uh, climate awareness and so on. And I was at one of his first events, you know, just by networking, somebody invited me and I said, okay, we have to do something about that. So we, you know, dedicated resources, a team member very passionate about that mm -hmm. and created a team of passionate uh, talents in our company. Yeah. And really they developed step-by-step -step a vision um, and steps, you know, signing commitments. And then we realized that naturally as a global business, you know, we are, we were diverse by definition already, uh, you know, in terms of, of course, gender because of our field, but also uh, geographically and so on. So culturally, very diverse. And we really invested a lot in that. Uh, we realized when an industry where what we create is ephemeral, um, by definition. So we try to, to look at um, you know, better ways to do our job. Uh, there's a lot of print historically, so slowly we move to digital and so on. So really we applied everything possible following the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, really following that and selecting topics and really proactively uh, um, elaborating plans. So it all started by networking, you know, listening around, mm -hmm having a sense for what was going to happen and then investing in resources. So again, invest in the change. In that regard, do you think that companies, they have not only responsibility, but also a leverage depending on the business model and area of business, of course, to really contribute more to that change, to, to the achievement of the you know, sustainability goals? So, of course, bigger companies have uh, a lot of voice, of share of voice. And... For us, we are, you know, we're a small company. If you compare to uh, ABB or right, <laughs> other big companies, yeah. we're tiny, uh, but we're a big company in my space. So yeah. I think, um, and I'm proud today, I can you know, fairly say that we were a huge part of the sustainability movement in our industry. Um, and they drove a lot of other followers. And I think I'm very proud of that. 
And it's just the beginning, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, it is Still just a lot the beginning. Of work. There's yeah. a lot of work. Recently, you also participated in the Swiss Stock Exchange training program, the Sparks IPO Academy, which prepares companies for an IPO, obviously. And first of all, I want to know what actually motivated you to participate in that training? So, you know, I'm going to come back to, it's kind of a thread in our, in our thing here, but at one networking event, <laughs> I met somebody, an entrepreneur, and he told me, you know, in life, you have to have a lot of options. And as a private company uh, that is on a growth path, because we are interested in being always bigger, mm -hmm. access to capital is one key element. And uh, the, mar the, the listed markets is one way to, list, to, to raise capital. Uh, you can raise private money or public money. Sure. And I thought that I, need, I have a responsibility as a CEO uh, as in my job mm -hmm. to make sure the company has funding. So I need to understand deeply all what is available to us if we need to activate in a way or another. Yeah. So this was the, really the initial uh, motivation was, uh, was learning, mm -hmm. was learning. Wow. And what did it take away from the program? Were there any key learnings or key takeaways? So there's just some good and some bad <laughs> in there, right? Uh, if I start a little bit with the, the challenges, as you can imagine, being listed publicly, you have a responsibility to the public that invests, um, so to minority shareholders who don't necessarily understand all the business. So there's a lot of legal aspects which are, are really serious, yeah. but it's normal. And I respect that. I don't have a problem with that, but it's just something that's, probably more intense than what I live as a private company. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is something that I learned that needs to be organized. It's a question of organization. Yeah. Now, the, the positive or you know, positive side is the access to capital is very fluid. Because of, for example, the legal and the disciplined uh, way you have to manage a company, in exchange, you have some facilities, which is the access to capital. Mm -hmm. And I realized in times like COVID, uh, at some point, you know, I was thinking, even despite everything I said before, you know, what if we need 5, 10, 15 million for the business? Sure. It's difficult to find that kind of money when you're a private company. Yeah, when everyone wants it at the same time, and, right? Yeah. And my industry is black flagged because uh, we're in the eye of the cyclone. Yeah. So nobody wants to invest in that space. Of course. I had... I'll give you an example. I had one call with an investor because, again, I like to network. So I'm always keeping contact with some investors mm -hmm. that they told me, yes, we're very interested, but we're going to wait until you hit the rock bottom and then yeah. we will put some money. And yeah. that's pretty tough to hear. So they've been waiting for you to be there. So probably I would think as a, as a public company, you probably have more support from your shareholders and have ways to raise money that is more fluid than in a, a private way. So right. um, this is very attractive. Absolutely. Now, do you have any plans after the program? Uh, you learned, you understand, you want to have the options available. Do you have any immediate actions where you say, hey, now we're going to prepare as we go public or you actually do want to go public? What are your plans after the program? Mm -hmm. So we discussed a lot, a lot internally the program because I brought a lot of the learnings. Um, mm -hmm. The program is really well done. You, you go with your CFO, actually. So it's a team and that was very, uh, I think it's very smart. Um, so already I'm not alone in listening. So we can debrief at two and then we can talk with the teams. Yeah. So our immediate next step is, is you know, uh, not tomorrow. 
we're coming out of COVID. Uh, the situation is, uh, is, you know, we're still in the rebuild phase. We're still installing a couple of elements. Mm -hmm. And I believe also one of the learnings of going into um, the, 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 the IPO learning process with Sparks um, uh, and Six Group um, was that you also need a, a tight narrative and a tight story. Uh, yeah. And right now, probably our, our, the, the storytelling um, is not ideal. It's probably too soon after COVID because, for example, you know, I speak with some investors and they tell me, oh, but you are in a volatile business. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but no, I don't agree at all. Our <laughs> business is volatile. Yeah. COVID hit us strong. Yes, COVID yeah. hit us, but it doesn't mean I'm a volatile business. Right. Uh, if yeah. there's a virus, I'm impacted. But sure. when there was the financial crisis the last time, we grew by 50% between 2007 and 2009. We grew the business by 50%. Mm -hmm. So that crisis didn't impact us. Yeah. So I'm still fighting some, uh, some of that. And I feel it's too difficult to fight those, those negative perceptions. So mm -hmm. it's probably not the right timing at the moment. Right. And especially use a global company, right? You have different mm -hmm. stock exchanges where you could go public. Right. So what would he gain from going public on Sparks or the six main market here in Switzerland? So um, it's interesting because a few years ago, I was looking a little bit at the markets already and I clearly realized that second market is probably more um, uh, uh, right for my type of business or so mid-cap kind of company. Mm -hmm. And it didn't exist in Switzerland, actually. Right. So I was looking at, for example, there was AIM in the UK. Um, there is also the... Um, in, in Paris, they also have a second market stock exchange. I just forgot the name. Uh, and then when I saw Spark, I was like, oh, wow, that's cool because still my headquarters are in Switzerland. Right. So I said, I need to understand more. So it's a, it's a new uh, opportunity, very attractive for mid-cap, uh, a lot of um, easier way to report uh, because, you know, we don't have the, the resources of, uh, again, like an ABB or Swisscom, yeah. for example. So um, that's when, you know, I, I got a little bit uh, more interested in, in exploring again. Fantastic. And maybe to wrap the IPO topic up, you mentioned already two, uh, one advantage, one disadvantage. Advantage, of course, access to more capital and also more liquidity in that regard. Disadvantage, more legal obligations. What are other advantages and disadvantages that you got to know in the program of going public? So um, I, I don't know if it's a, uh, an advantage or disadvantage, but uh, and for me, it's not very difficult because I like it, but I always try to be very public as a CEO, because I believe that, you know, what I try to do is that uh, clients call me and not me call clients. So for me, by making noise, participating at the podcast like today and uh, doing other actions like that, becoming public, I generate visibility. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think there's a readiness there for me in that market. But I know some friends, entrepreneur CEO, who are not necessarily extroverts, I would say. And that would probably uh, be a painful for them. So again, every company has a different context. So mm -hmm. uh, this is kind of plus and minus depending where you sit, but right. there's definitely a, a public aspect to it. Yeah. Um, for um, If we look at the, the, the Swiss market in particular, um, I think the Swiss market is historically used to a few really big caps. Mm -hmm. um, so the fear is a little bit maybe being lost as a mid-cap in the market with really big caps. Yeah. Uh, that's something we discussed at length and so on. There's answers, but in, in a way, there are questions uh, to be conscious about uh, from that point of view. Got so, it. Mm. If we now look into the future, you have a presence in more than 60 cities worldwide. Mm. That's yeah, crazy, like a real global company. Mm. 
what are your plans for the future? What will be you know, your milestones, your goals for the next few years to come? So the, the milestone, I think, you know, I kind of hinted into that before. Your question was leading almost there. You know, probably do as much revenue outside of the live event industry than we do inside the live event industry. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, like I said, we want to really, we believe our capabilities are to support companies with marketing and their communication. Live event is only one of the ways to create engagement with your customers, your employees, your stakeholders. Right. And we believe there are other means. I mean, there are other means like digital, for example. We're looking at Web3. Uh, we're looking at add-on services uh, in terms of augmentation of, uh, of uh, content and content development for, for our clients as well. So, mm -hmm. you know, that would be a mi key milestone. You know, we used to have the milestone of doing as much revenue outside of Switzerland than in Switzerland. And that we passed, I don't know what year, but we passed it. And now probably the next one will be to have this 50-50 balance between live event revenue and non-live event revenue. It also brings me back to what you said initially, right? Where you said there is a, an important balance between working and playing. Correct. So this is also a very important thing about balance. So it seems balance is a key thing in, in your life, in business and private life. Yes, I think it is. I and it's that. how everything integrates together also. Because right. balance alone is not, because it's not one or the other. The whole point is how everything together and connected creates the, the, the perfect scenario. Absolutely. Seb, to wrap up today's episode, we have some rapid fire questions for you. So I either give you a short question or different options to choose okay. from. And you have to answer in one sentence. Okay. You ready? <laughs> okay. <laughs> First one, Switzerland, the US or Canada? Uh, Switzerland. I love Switzerland. Beer or wine? Red wine. Nice. <laughs> Beach or mountains? That's difficult. Uh, if I have to choose mountains. W which mountain? If you had to choose one? I mean, you... the Alps are amazing, yeah. but, you know, it's just so close by. Why go elsewhere? Yeah. How many hours of sleep did you get last night? Um, by 11, 10, 30, 11 to 6. So that's seven hours, seven and a half. Yeah. Perfect. What do you wish you had done differently in your career, if there's anything? No, I, I, I never think that way. I look into the future always. The I past like is the past and then, then next. Yeah. And the last one for you today, Geneva or Zurich? Zurich for party and Geneva for life. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Seb, thank you so much for coming on the show. Lots of success and all the best. And we're super excited to see where you're going and where you're bringing the MCI group. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.